Our scripture today uh, is coming from uh, Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. With a voice, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, my name is Lanny. Uh, I know a lot of you guys, but not everyone. Uh, I am a, uh, an elder here at Christ Community Church. I'm not the normal guy up here, but I, you do get me a few times a year. So um, it's an honor and privilege uh, to be with you guys this morning. Now, a lot of times when Jared asked me to fill in, um, I'm kind of thinking like, did you just not want to preach on this passage? Uh, but today he's given me a really, really good one. So I do appreciate that. Um, and I hope I can do it justice. Um, If I don't, there's a lot of really good resources out there and a lot of really good sermons on this passage that you can check out. But um, we're talking about the transfiguration. This is a a massive moment in in biblical uh, history, and so we have been studying this gospel of Mark, uh, and we've been in this gospel for some time now, and we've reached this pivotal passage. And As we look at the transfiguration this morning, I just kind of want us to think back to a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus is asking his disciples, he asked them, who do you say I am? And the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is that same question, who do you say Jesus is? Is he a prophet? Is he a priest? Is he a good teacher? Is he a lunatic? Uh, All historians, whether Christian or non-Christian, if you talk about Muslim historians, Buddhists, atheists, Hindus, agnostic, they would all agree that Jesus was a pivotal figure in all of human history. We can all agree on that. And if you're sane out there in academia, they would agree with that. His mark on this world can't be denied. But beyond that one agreement, there's a lot of confusion. 
there's a lot of disagreement about who he was. Atheists and agnostics would say that he was a good teacher or a philosopher. Muslims would say that he was another prophet from Allah. Hindus would say that he was a good guru. Buddhists would say that he was an enlightened person who had reached a higher state of existence through reincarnation. But the real question is, and the most important question here for us this morning, is who do you say that he is? Who is he really? And so we live in this culture today that increasingly wants to attack and challenge the historical biblical perspective on Jesus' identity. Many who even call themselves Christians now challenge the idea of the deity of Jesus. You know, they're okay with him being a good teacher. They're okay with him being a philosopher that they kind of follow. But the idea of him being the Christ, the idea of him being the one true Messiah, the Lord of the universe who came down to die for our sins and who now sits at the right hand of God the Father working everything out, that idea is not okay with them. And the reason is, is because how you answer that question of who Jesus is, it has massive implications on your life, in this life and the life to come. And it has massive implications on the way you live your life. And so the truth is that many people in this world want absolutely zero authority over them. The only authority they want over them is themselves. We live in this postmodern age. Everybody feels like they can create their own truth, be their own little God, if you will. And so they want to deny his deity. They want to deny his power. So as we've studied this gospel of Mark up to this point here in chapter 9, we've seen that Mark is indeed telling us that this is the central question, who is this man? And as the gospel has progressed, we, we see how Jesus begins to reveal himself to his disciples, to his inner circle. Now we know, because we're standing here as a witness today, that he eventually reveals himself to the world. We're here in Texarkana, Texas, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, thousands of years later, and we're here to worship him because we can know him. But initially... He reveals himself to his closest friends, his inner circle, his disciples. Now, we see in the Gospel of Mark that he's shown them initially his power and authority through working these miracles. He rises people from the dead. He heals paralytics. He heals diseases. He gives sight to blind people. And everything has been building up to Mark 8, 29, when Jesus asked his disciples this pivotal question that we're talking about, when Jesus says, who am I? And Peter answers him that he indeed is the Christ. He's right. Peter is right. And for a moment we think, man, they've got it all figured out. They're doing good. But then Jesus immediately goes into this hard teaching. He goes into this teaching that he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And his disciples are completely blown away by this. They're in crisis mode because this is not what they had planned. This isn't what they were thinking. They were looking for a supernatural earthly king that would liberate the Jewish people, that would restore the great kingdom of old. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go backwards to the old kingdom. 
to Solomon's kingdom. And they were probably thinking that since they had a front row seat with the king, the future king, that they were going to reap earthly rewards. And so they were okay with a little suffering at the beginning, right? As long as it ended with earthly riches and power. Of course, our culture teaches that, right? Suffering is not a bad thing in our culture as long as it ends with something really good for you in this world, right? I mean, that's the whole idea of exercise. You know, exercise is hard, but it, we reap rewards from it. And I'm not saying exercise is sinful. It's a good thing. But that is the idea that we have in our culture. But this isn't what the king's talking about. He's not talking about earthly reign. He's not talking about earthly power. He's talking about death. He's talking about denying themselves. He's talking about picking up their cross. He's talking about losing their lives so they can gain them. And this causes them to go into a complete tailspin. And this is where they find themselves here at the beginning of our passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 9. And so Jesus knows that they are struggling. He knows that they don't have the full picture yet. He knows that they are sinful and broken people. He knows that it's only through him that they're sustained. And so he knows they're struggling. He knows that hard times are coming for them, and he loves them. He loves them deeply. And so he, le- he leads his inner circle up a mountain where something amazing is going to happen, the transfiguration. Now, this is a cool and, like, amazing scene. He was illuminated on the top of a mountain. But what was the purpose of this event? So I think as as we look more closely at the transfiguration, we're going to see clearly who Jesus really is. And this scene isn't going to allow us to make any of these false assumptions about who he is and what he means to the world. So as we look at this scripture this morning, I just want us to answer those, these two questions. One is that, what does the transfiguration tell us about who Jesus really is? And two, as we answer that question, how should it affect our lives? How should it change the way we face the challenges of this world? So let's take a look here at verse 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, as we look at these two verses here, we see that it was six days after the pronouncement by Peter that Jesus was the Christ. So it's shortly after that time, and Jesus is taking his inner circle with him up this mountain. So he's taking Peter, James, and John. Now, This wouldn't have been that unusual. We see this throughout Scripture. Jesus retreated into the wilderness to spend time with his Father. He retreated in the wilderness to spend time to pray and meditate. And he often uh, brought his disciples with him. In fact, these are the three disciples that that will be with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's taken away to eventually go to the cross. And so... Mark tells us that they're on the top of this mountain, and when they are alone, Jesus is illuminated. And he's illuminated brighter than anything we can imagine on earth. That's kind of the idea we get here. 
And Mark talks about his clothes being illuminated, but in other Gospels, we're told that his whole presence, his face, his body was illuminated as well. And so just take a moment to think about how both awe-inspiring and frightening this would have been for Peter, James, and John. This isn't just like a bright white. This isn't just, you know, getting your clothes really clean and, and bleached out. This is a heavenly radiance. It's something that's otherworldly. Nothing on earth can compare to it. It would have stretched their minds. It would have stretched all their senses and their very idea of reality. You know, they've been traveling with Jesus for a time now, and they've, they've been spending lots of time with him. And they've seen him do these wondrous works, right? They've seen him perform these miracles, but they haven't seen anything like this yet. His appearance just seems like a normal man. In fact, Scripture tells us that there was nothing special about his appearance. There was nothing that set him apart from just the average Joe of the day. But now his whole presence is transformed physically before their eyes. This would have been shocking to them. Let's read on here in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For we did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So we see here that Elijah and Moses appear just kind of out of nowhere, and they're talking with Jesus. And again, we see that the disciples are shaken by this. This, this was not an average day for them. This was something supernatural. In fact, we're told that they were terrified. And Peter, kind of out of fear and, and complete misunderstanding, says something totally out of left field, right? He asked, if he should build them three tents. You know, what, what's that about? You know, do you ever like get scared or nervous or in like some awkward social situation and you just say something totally weird and crazy and then you look back on it the next day and you cringe? And you're like, why did I say that? That's so weird. Um, maybe I just do that more often than most people. But um, I'm sure like as these disciples were passing down the Gospels through the years, and as they were written down, you know, years later, that they were kind of cringing at what they said and did, really, you know, throughout their time with Jesus. But that's one of the great apologetics to the truth of the Gospels, right? That they kept all the ugly details in there about themselves. So we see that they're still really confused right now. They're still really confused at this moment. The Greek word used for tent here is actually the Greek word for tabernacle as well. And so it could, was used in that way. And so when we think of a tabernacle, we see it as a place that kind of connects God with the people. You know, God is holy. We are sinners. We are not holy. It's, it's almost like a mediator. And so Peter rightly recognizes that, that these are men of honor before God. But notice here that he puts Moses and Elijah on the same level 
as Jesus. And he asked to make Jesus a tabernacle when Jesus himself, we're going to learn, is the true tabernacle, the new tabernacle. He's the mediator between us and God. So we can see here that their vision is still blurry. It's not clear yet. And you really can't blame them. They don't have the full picture, but they're struggling. And then immediately this cloud comes, and it envelops them. And really at this point, Peter, James, and John would have thought that they were surely going to die. They would have thought that they were dead men. Because these guys knew their Old Testament. They knew their Old Testament theology, and they knew that any time you face the glory of God, you die. But instead of God destroying them for their false thinking and for their confusion, He speaks to them. He speaks to them directly, and He says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. So what does this mean? What does this tell us about Jesus? You know, first of all, I think this story most certainly makes us think back to another mountaintop experience in the Old Testament. You know, when we're thinking about this, we're going to think back to Exodus. And we're going to see that Moses ascends another mountain, Mount Sinai. And he actually goes up and down it a, a, a lot, a, several times. But there are many similarities between these Old Testament accounts and the Transfiguration account. They're both on a mountaintop, right? That's the first most obvious similarity. Uh, Moses is present in both. God's glory descends in a cloud in both accounts, and God speaks from the cloud. So those are all similarities that we can see. You know, in the Exodus account, Moses is led up to the mountain, and God descends on the mountain in a cloud, and he delivers the law to Moses. And at one point, Moses asked to see God's glory while in his presence, and he is told by God that man shall not see, the, see his face and live. And so Moses has to kind of stand in this crevice in the rock, and, and God kind of has to put his hand over him as he passes by so that Moses won't be destroyed. So surely Peter, James, and John had this account in mind when this glory cloud is descending on the mountain. In the Exodus accounts, we see that when Moses descends from the mountain, he's transfigured in a way as well. His face is glowing. He's reflecting the glory of God because he had been in his presence for 40 days and 40 nights. So we have a lot of similarities between these two accounts, but I think for us to see clearly what we're being told here in Mark 9, we need to look at some of the differences. One major difference that we need to see is that Moses was simply reflecting the radiance of God's glory like the moon reflects the sun. But what do we see here in the transfiguration? We see that Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. He is the source of the radiance. He is the sun. The radiant light emanates directly from him. And so there's no denying his deity in this passage, and Peter, James, and John would have seen this. It's as, it's as if his flesh was pulled back for a moment, and the divine, eternal radiance of the Messiah was clearly seen. 
And if that doesn't drive the point home to these disciples, to us, his deity is immediately confirmed as, as God's glory descends in the cloud and he directly addresses the disciples and tells them that this is his beloved son. Listen to him. He has authority. You know, their whole lives, Peter, James, and John, from little boys on up, would have been told to listen to the prophets, to listen to the law. Now they're being told directly by God the Father to listen to Jesus. And so that brings up Moses and Elijah. How do, what, what are they doing here? How do we think about this? There's probably some implications that I don't understand, but if we look back at chapter 8, when Jesus asked his disciples who others say that he is, we see that they said that some say that he was Elijah. We see other places in Scripture where some said he was the second coming of Moses, right? And so Moses and Elijah here represent the prophets of old, as well as the law. The prophets and the law of the Old Testament were pointing to something greater. They were pointing to something more. And one reason they show up in this scene is to show clearly that Jesus was not just another prophet to give another new law. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Moses. And as they disappear and only he remains, we see that he indeed is the fulfillment of everything they were pointing to. The prophets all point to him. In him, the law has been fulfilled. So, we get a clear picture of who Jesus is here on this mountaintop. But the problem with the mountaintop experience in this life is that you have to come down from the mountain. And so let's look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? <clears throat> and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Peter, James, and John had just had this mountaintop experience. They've seen the transfigured Christ with their own eyes in all of his glory. They've seen the glory of God descend in a cloud and address them personally. And they survived all of this. You, know, you would think that they were kind of probably on like cloud nine. No, no pun intended, right? But... They would have been really feeling good. They would have been happy. They would have been full of joy and awe and wonder. But now they have to descend back into the world. They have to descend back into chaos. I'm sure some of you have had, obviously not this experience, but you've had mountaintop experiences in your walk with the Lord. 
You tell yourself that after this experience, you will serve God with all that you have. You will never fall back into that old sin pattern. You'll never be lazy again with your faith. You're going to serve to the ends of the earth with all your power and might. Maybe it was a mission trip that kind of created this experience. Maybe it was just a, a really uh, amazing worship service. Uh, or, a, or a church retreat, or a church camp, or maybe just even some time spent with the Lord in nature. Maybe it's time spent with the Lord on a literal mountaintop. But you know that you have to descend back into the chaos. You have to descend back into the world, and it doesn't take long to get knocked off your rails, right? Next week, we're going to look see that they actually descended as they descended and got back, they're confronted like by a literal demon. So Jesus knows that as he descends, that he's marching back into the chaos. He knows that he's marching towards Jerusalem. He knows that he's marching towards the cross. And he knows that his followers must follow him in suffering. They're going to come after him in suffering. And he knows <clears throat> that none of this, the miracles, the transfiguration, none of this is going to make complete sense until after his death and resurrection. And so he charges them not to speak about what they had seen until they have the full picture, until he's resurrected. Now we quickly see here that they're still not accepting and grasping this idea of a suffering Christ. And so as Christ tells them to not talk about it until he's resurrected, they're thinking, oh, he has to die. He still has to die. And they're almost rebuffing Jesus when they ask about Elijah's return. You know, they're referring to the last few verses of Malachi where it's prophesied that Elijah will come back before the great and awesome day of the Lord to kind of make things right. Basically what they're saying here is, hey, you know, I just saw Elijah on that mountain. He was just right up there. I just saw you transfigured. Doesn't that mean that all things will be restored and you're not going to have to suffer? You're not going to have to go to the cross? You're not going to have to be resurrected? Notice here that Jesus is quick, is quick with his rebuttal, right? And he does this by pointing them back to Scripture. He's pointing them back to the image of the suffering servant. Most likely he's calling them to remember Isaiah 53, to remember the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And then we have this last verse in verse 13. This would have been kind of like a shocking dagger to Peter, James, and John. Here he's referring to the treatment and death of John the Baptist as the new Elijah. And here he's pointing out clearly that following him is not going to result in a life of earthly glory and gain, but is going to be a life of struggle and suffering. This must have been a blow to them. And at this point, we wonder if some of the, this is beginning to sink in, even though they don't want it to be true. So we talked about answering those two questions this morning. Who is Jesus how should this knowledge change the way we live? And I think that as we look at the transfiguration, 
we can clearly see that this scene will not allow us to see Jesus as anything but the one and only Messiah. We can't see him as anything but the true divine Christ. Hebrews 1 says this, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who Jesus is. He's not another prophet. He's not another guru. He's not an enlightened, reincarnated man. That's all utter nonsense. You can't look at Scripture and come away with anything that resembles any of the nonsense. He is the Christ. That is who he proclaimed to be. That is who he proved to be through his life, death, and resurrection. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God, and through him, we can know that God is good. We can know that God is love. We can know that we can be saved and be made right because he fulfilled the law, because he took on the wrath of God the Father on the cross, because he paid the price that we deserve so that we could be made right. And if we've placed our faith in this promise, that changes everything for us. It changes the way we view the world. It changes the way we live our lives. It changes our relationships. This life is not easy. It's full of difficulty. Becoming a Christian does not take that away. It's not a magic bullet. Our Savior calls on us to pick up our cross, to follow Him. We will face challenges along the way, difficult things. We face dealing with our own sinful flesh, dealing with our own sinful desires that we want to get rid of. We live in fallen bodies that are failing us each day. We live in a world full of chaos, a world that oftentimes hates us because of our beliefs. The disciples were coming back down into the chaos. They were fallen people just like us. Yet despite all their imperfections, despite them not getting it over and over and over again, we know that Peter, James, and John persevered to the end. We know that they were the pillars of the church. They established the church. Because of them, we can be here and worship and know who Jesus is. They endured much suffering along the way. We know that Peter and James were killed for their faith. They followed the path of their master. But that we know also that they were true to the end. What sustained them in those dark days? What sustained them amongst the suffering? You know, I have to believe like in their darkest days that their minds made their way back to this mountaintop. To the image of the transfigured Christ. To the hope of the resurrection that it points to. The hope of Revelation 21 where we see God will make His dwelling place with us. Where every tear will be wiped away. 
where everything will be made right for eternity. But I think maybe what they remembered the most is in the midst of the cloud when Moses and Elijah disappear. Even though Jesus was greater than them, even though Jesus had more honor than them, that he certainly had the right to ascend to heavenly glory, he stayed. He stayed behind with Peter, James, and John. He stayed to climb down the mountain with them and enter back into the chaos. He stayed to complete his journey to the cross. It's a journey that he took for Peter, James, and John, and it's a journey that he took for you and I here today. A journey he took for all those who would believe in him. So when you go through the dark valleys of suffering in this life, when you're persecuted for your faith, when you face the sting of death and disease, know that you are not alone. The Christ, the Lord of the universe, came down from his high place so that you would not suffer alone. He didn't abandon Peter, James, and John on the mountain. And if you are his, he will not abandon you. But we must do as the Father says. We must listen to Him. We must listen to Him. How do we do that? We listen through worship. We listen through singing the beautiful songs that we sang this morning. We listen by reading His Word. We listen by praying, by singing, by studying together. We worship together, and that builds us up day by day. As we worship together each week, we are coming to the foot of the cross, and we are trying to catch a vision of Jesus. Just like Peter, James, and John would go back to the transfiguration. That's what we're doing here week by week. That's why it's so important. That's what this church is built on. That's what we're trying to do. So we must listen to him through our worship. We must trust that he will sustain us to the end. Not because we are strong or good or clever, but because he is good and he is true and he doesn't abandon his people. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are the king of everything. That Jesus gave up his high place to come down, to live with us, to die with us, to die for us. To be resurrected so that we can know that you are good, that you love us, that you've made a way for us, and that we can trust in that. It's a promise that will never go away. It's a promise that will never abandon us. Help us to hold tight to it when we go through the trials of this life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.